This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 112 is Jungian analyst and scholar Craig Stevenson in Lisbon, Portugal. He earned a diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst, from the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich, and a doctorate from the Center for Psychoanalytic Studies at the University of Essex. Dr. Stevenson also trained in group psychotherapy, sociometry, and psychodrama at the Institute for Psychodrama in Zumacon, Switzerland. He worked in private practice in Paris for 12 years and has served on the Ethics Committee and the Executive Committee of the Association of Graduates in Analytical Psychology and on the Board of Directors of the Philemon Foundation. Most recently, he worked as Director of Training of the Jungian Psychoanalytic Association in New York City. He is a certified Jungian analyst in New York State, a member of the Canadian Association for Psychodynamic Therapy, an associate member of the Canadian Psychological Association, and is qualified to work in Canada as a registered psychotherapist under the College of Registered Psychotherapists of Ontario. As an academic scholar interested in the history of psychological disciplines, he has published several books and articles, and edited original unpublished work by C.G. Jung, for Princeton University Press. Dr. Stevenson's books are Possession, Jung's Comparative Anatomy of the Psyche, Anteros, A Forgotten Myth, Jung and Moreno, Essays on the Theater of Human Nature, On Psychological and Visionary Art, Notes from Jung's Lecture on Gerard de Nerval's Aurelia, Ages of Anxiety, Jung's Types as Inspiration for Poetry, Music, and Dance, and now The Correspondence of Victoria Ocampo, Count Kaiserling, and C.G. Jung, Writing to the Woman Who Was Everything, coming later this year from Routledge. On August 29th, he will be presenting a performed reading of his forthcoming book at the IAAP's 22nd International Congress in Buenos Aires. Three Argentinian actors will perform in English a selection of the correspondence that preceded and followed the encounters told in the book. All of that and more are the subjects of our talk today. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, July 27, 2022, through the magic of Skype. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Stevenson. Thank you. I'm very happy to be to be with you by Skype. In the introduction, I mentioned that in addition to your degree as a Jungian analyst, you also earned a doctorate from the Center for Psychoanalytic Studies at the University of Essex. And when you and I spoke earlier, you mentioned to me that Jung is not taught in the U.S. and that the University of Essex is changing that. Would you tell us more about that? Well, the um, the Center for Psychoanalytic Studies at the University of Essex is the um, the creation of an, uh, a group of psychoanalysts um, who include um, Reynos Papadopoulos and Andrew Samuels, um, who wanted uh, to to make a place for Jung in the English language academic world. Jung is read in academia in Italy, in Brazil, um, now I think in Japan, but in the English speaking world, um, Jung is not very much part of uh, academia. Um, he, he's um, relegated sometimes to literary studies or religious studies, but not to psychology. And um, I, I think Andrew Samuels and Reynos Papadopoulos uh, and the other uh, professors at the University of Essex have made a real effort to create um, a climate in which Jung can be discussed um, in the English language academic world. And it's a, a very important work that they've a- a- achieved in, in creating that space for Jung in academia. Mm-hmm. And those two gentlemen that you mentioned are both 
Jungian analysts as well. Yes. And I'd like to discuss with you the difference between a Jungian analyst and a Jungian-oriented psychotherapist or a Jungian scholar. It seems like there's a lot of Jung out there, but there are not a lot of Jungian analysts. And that is one of the reasons why I created this podcast was to feature the work specifically of Jungian analysts. So I'm very interested in understanding uh, or actually in hearing your take on um, what what the differences are, how they're similar, and how this kind of how they sort of coexist. Hmm. Do, do you see where I'm coming from here? Yes. Uh, um, I mean, I, I, I appreciate the question very much. Um, it's, it's not an easy one to answer because um, it depends a little bit on the context. Each country um, has a slightly different context. Um, uh, what, what I think you're talking about is the fact that to get a, a diploma in analytical psychology um, from an IAAP, an International Association of Analytical Psychology Training Institute, um, allows you to call yourself a Jungian analyst. Um, there are lots of other kinds of training um, where one, as you say, one can receive a Jungian orientation in your training to become a, a therapist. But the, the, the IAAP trainings um, are quite um, specific and quite, quite rigorous. Um, uh, at the time when, uh, when I wanted to train, I'm from Canada, there was no training in Canada, and um, I had to choose between possibly traveling to the United States on weekends to train in with the interregional program uh, that was forming in the United States, or to, to travel to England or to uh, Zurich and train at the institutes there. Um, so, um, uh, that has now changed in Canada. There is now a training program in Toronto. Um, but there are also um, trainings for um, Jung, as you pointed out, for Jungian therapists, um, Jungian oriented therapists, which are not IAAP training programs. And they, they ha they're quite legitimate and, uh, and quite important. What is the difference between a Jungian analyst training as a Jungian analyst and training as a Jungian oriented psychotherapist? Again, I think it, it depends very much on on um, where the training is taking place. Um, I ask you this because of your very diverse background. You are Canadian by birth. You also, you were the training analyst in New York City mm -hmm. at that group. And you practiced in Paris, and now you live in Portugal. So, and we have listeners all over the world. So I was hoping you would give us a sense for how it's different in different areas, what's involved, because I get these questions a lot. And sometimes I don't know how to answer people. <laughs> well, it's a very, it's a very difficult question to answer. Um, I, I mean, just in terms of the general public knowing the difference between what is a psychiatrist, what is a psychologist, what is a therapist? You're asking um, a very refined question about what is the difference between um, training as an analyst in an IAAP program and training um, in a more general um, thera therapeutic training um, that might have a Jungian orientation. And I think it comes down to um, the fact that the IAAP has um, certain uh, requirements for its training institutes, 
um, all around the world. And so training institutes that want to be IAAP accredited have to um, meet certain standards. And those standards have to do with um, uh, what, what students are required to read in terms of reading Jung, uh, you know, reading the primary sources, reading commentary on Jung, reading um, how the, the theory has moved forward and um, adapted itself to, to new times. Um, and then the, um, the clinical requirements in terms of working with patients, in terms of you know, completing supervision, um, writing up case reports, uh, writing a thesis. Um, so there are requirements that the IAP uh, want uh, one to meet in order to become a Jungian, an IAP Jungian analyst. But the word analyst is not controlled. Um, so in the United States, for example, there are people who call themselves Jungian analysts who do not have an IAP training and, and the IAP has not been able to control that, that designation. So, um, so that's what, where we get into gray areas. And in the United States, um, certain um, states have different regulations. Um, the, I worked in New York City, and in New York State, union analysts fall under the umbrella of licensed psychoanalysts. But, but in many states in the United States, psychoanalysis is not a controlled act. It's not controlled by the by government agencies. So um, you can you, you have to get a license as a social worker or as a marriage therapist. Um, but psychoanalysis is not a designation which the state recognizes. So what about the personal analysis? that you must undergo uh, while training to become a Jungian analyst that, from what I understand, is not required to become a Jungian-oriented psychotherapist. Mm. But the IAAP training programs do require a personal analysis. Is that correct? That's correct. That's mm. correct. I'm, uh, the, um, I mean, the, the two most important components, I, I think, of uh, the training are the the and the analysis, the personal training analysis, and the supervision. I also would like to hear about the the training that might not be the right word that you went through at the University of Essex to receive your doctorate. And aside from the personal analysis you went through in training to become an analyst, uh, you also, like you mentioned, you you read Jung, you you studied Jung's works. So how was that different, or was it the same from what you studied at the University of Essex? Um, I studied at the Jung Institute in Zurich, so uh, I was introduced to. Um, reading the collected works of Jung very intensively in Zurich um, for the years that I was um, in Zurich, 1993 to 1998, um, I would suggest that um, at the Jung Institute in Zurich, there was a kind of eclecticism. You got to hear many different perspectives. There was a kind of classical reading of Jung. There was a developmental reading of Jung. Um, there were Hillmanesque uh, archetypal readings of Jung. Um, but at the University of Essex, what was emphasized was a, a kind of critical reading of Jung. Um, uh, and um, a, a, a real attempt to um, draw Jung forward into the 21st century. Um, so uh, perhaps less of a um, um, protecting Jung um, in, in his um, historical and cultural context um, as, a, as a Swiss man of the, at, the, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, and saying, you know, what is he good for now? 
And so there was, um, uh, from an academic point of view, there was a, a, a real emphasis on the continuum of knowledge. That is to say, you would try to read um, all the commentaries on Jung up until you know, the present day. And then your task as an academic was to um, summarize that and then critique it and then add to it to see what you could add to it, to the continuum. How would you see individuals, academics, who study Jung, who have not been analyzed themselves? How could they, because I'm, I'm having a difficult time understanding that. I'm having a difficult time understanding the academic Jung and the, say, clinical Jung, the analytical Jung. Well, um, when, when Jung um, wrote an essay, it often came out of um, a lecture he gave, um, and he would be speaking to a particular audience. So when he spoke to um, a group of medical doctors about schizophrenia, his language was different, his anecdotes were different, his approach was different. When he spoke at the Tavistock Clinic, um, he had a very particular style. When he spoke at the psychology club in Zurich, the style was very different. Uh, it was anecdotal. Uh, it was full of associations and amplifications. Um, so Jung had many different voices. Um, I think what happens in, um, uh, in academic approaches to Jung is that um, those voices are analyzed and um, revalued. Um, you know, somebody who's done beautiful work in that regard is Susan Rowland, her work on uh, Jung as a writer. Um, that's, that's an academic approach to um, looking at Jung. Um, Leslie Gardner, who um, brought the theory of rhetoric to, to play. To, so she uses theory about rhetoric to approach um, her reading of Jung. Um, so what academics do is bring a critical apparatus to the texts. Um, uh, and, and it's um, it's 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 absolutely crucial that uh, that we have those um, those opinions and those arguments about um, how Jung how Jungian texts work. Being a Jungian analyst and practicing Jungian analysis and having yourself been analyzed. Do you not see that as a prerequisite to understanding Jung? I guess I don't understand why, and I wanted to ask you because of your background, I don't understand why somebody would be an academic uh, completely immersed in Jung without also being interested in being analyzed. Well, I guess you would have to ask the academics um, who aren't analyzed. Um, the ones that I know, uh, you know, have had experience working with um, with therapists or analysts for the most part. Mm -hmm. But it's not something that they they're not clinicians and they they're not interested in practicing as 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 clinicians. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you also trained, in addition to all of this, I find your background to be fascinating. In addition to that, you also trained in group psychotherapy, sociometry, and psychodrama at an institute in Switzerland called the Institute for Psychodrama. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yes. In order to tell that story, I'd, I would have to go back a little bit. Okay. Um, um, to begin with, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm originally from London, Ontario, Canada. And um, before um, getting interested in Jung, 
um, I encountered um, Marion Woodman um, not as a Jungian analyst, but as an English teacher. She was my high school English teacher. Oh, I didn't know that. I was wondering why you mentioned her in the acknowledgments to one of your books. I have it here in the notes. And uh, so hopefully we'll get to that later. She was your high school English teacher. Wow. Yes, before, before she trained as a Jungian analyst, um, sh she was my high school English teacher. And so in my last year of high school, I read Blake's Marriage of Heaven and Hell, Shakespeare's King Lear, Samuel Beckett's Endgame. Um, and, and we were exploring um, these texts as texts and also as theater. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and her brother, Fraser Boa was directing the theater and film department at the same high school. Ah, oh, wow. And then, uh, after I graduated from high school, uh, Fraser Boa and Marion Woodman went off to Zurich to train as analysts and I kept in touch with them. Oh. And, uh, so they came back from Zurich to uh, Canada and with Daryl Sharp, mm -hmm. the three of them founded the Ontario Association. Um, and, uh, and, and so Daryl was my, my first analyst. Ah, I didn't know that. This, I created this podcast in 2015 because of Daryl, because I had met him in Columbus, Ohio, when he came to the Jung House to give a weekend talk. And I, when I decided to create this podcast, I thought I'm going to interview all of Daryl's authors, all of the inner city books authors. So I went to Toronto and he was my first guest. And then we did another episode together and I still stay in touch. You know, he passed away a yeah. few years ago and I still stay in touch with, uh, uh, Scott Milligan, who took over Inner City Books, who was Daryl's longtime uh, manager, and uh, Daryl's family, I still keep in touch with them, and he lives on through this podcast. He was a very influential figure in my life. But yeah, thank you. Uh, please continue. Lovely, lovely. Well, I didn't know that story, Laura. So that's that's a wonderful connection. Um, but just to say, when I when I went to university, um, after experiencing um, my last year of high school with Marion, um, I majored in English literature and psychology. So, you know, uh, so right from the very beginning, uh, Marion's uh, way of putting psychology and literature together was a huge inspiration for me and, and shaped my mind as an adolescent. Um, so, so to say, I mean, I, uh, my, my, my original degree, my bachelor's degree, honors bachelor's degree is in English literature and psychology. My uh, graduate degree, my master's degree is in drama from the University of Toronto. So when I was at the Jung Institute in Zurich and training to be an analyst, um, I met Helmut and Eleanor Bartz. Now, Helmut and Eleanor Bartz were uh, Jungian analysts, um, very much in, engaged in the work of the Jung Institute in Kusnak in Zurich. And at the same time, they had created an institute for psychodrama in their little neighborhood of Zumacon. And there was a, a, a group of Jungian analysts in training who worked with Helmut and Eleanor um, in group psychotherapy, sociometry, and psychodrama. And we were using drama as a tool to do active imagination. So um, we were um, a group of, say, 14 training candidates um, working with the two leaders, with Helmut and Eleanor as the two directors, as co-directors. And so a protagonist, somebody would be chosen who might, for example, present a problem or they might recount a dream. 
and then we would um, we would enact the dream with director with Helmut or Eleanor, usually Helmut, but not always. Um, one of the co-directors would direct the scene, and the other co-director would be a kind of therapist who would stay at the side of the protagonist as he or she walked through the dream, asking questions, posing reflective comments, uh, and just accompanying the, the person through the experience. Um, so it was a kind of active imagination using theater. And uh, it was incredibly rich and very evocative. And um, so um, the, the book that I eventually edited, Jung and Moreno, um, was m my attempt to honor the work of Helmut and Eleanor uh, putting Jung and, and Moreno, putting analytical psychology and psychodrama together. Mm -hmm. You edited that volume uh, subtitled Essays on the Theater of Human Nature. It was published in 2014, and I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. So you did that training at what point in the lineup? After your training as an analyst? Um, I, I started the, the training in psychodrama while I was training in Zurich. And then um, I continued the training um, after uh, I left Zurich um, with the, um, the teacher who trained Helmut and Eleanor, a wonderful woman, Doreen Madden Alethery, who, um, who was uh, an actress at the Abbey Theatre in Ireland and uh, who then moved to the United States and trained with Moreno at his institute and uh, so had firsthand experience um, with Moreno um, in the United States. And, uh, and um, she was my, my teacher for the, um, the last two, three years of my training in psychodrama. And so you incorporate that in your practice as a Jungian analyst? Yes, I do. It's a very powerful tool. And um, I must say that the word psychodrama now in, in, in the vernacular has a kind of negative connotation. Yeah. If, you, if you see it in a newspaper piece, it usually means somebody's acting out in a kind of history. Right. So, um, so in the 60s and 70s, I think psychodrama acquired a kind of negative connotation uh, of a kind of acting out. Um, but uh, it can be used as a, as, a, as a very important tool. So um, in, in, a, in a session with a, with a patient in, in, a, in a clinical setting in a room, when there's just the two of you, um, yes, psychodrama can be used. And in the book, there's a beautiful chapter written by this, the Jungian analyst Christopher Beach from the United States about how to do that kind of work. And it can involve um, when somebody tells a dream, sometimes they they don't remember the details very clearly. So if you slow down and you ask them to reconstruct the setting of the dream in the room using objects, using pillows to say, well, there were three uh, chairs in the room uh, and I'm going to put these pillows to represent the three chairs. And there was a woman standing uh, off to the side and I'm going to use this uh, object um, to represent the woman and you just sort of set it very slowly and concretely using your sensation function reconstruct the dream and and uh, that can really be a useful tool uh, then you can s uh, invite the person to endow the objects to stand behind um, you know the the uh, an empty chair and 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 to 
endow the chair with the character that was in the dream and so make the make the components of the dream really present and then you can have a dialogue with those components of the dream so um, th and that's very much what Jung was describing um, as active imagination so this it is a a very powerful tool uh, and you don't use it with every patient but it can be um, uh, a really useful uh, component of your toolkit as a as an analyst yes so the first book you wrote titled possession jung's comparative anatomy of the psyche that was originally published in 2009 and you had mentioned to me that was your thesis at the Jung Institute? Um, no, that was my thesis at Essex. At Essex, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, that's where you mentioned Marion Woodman in the acknowledgments. And I had I saw that and I was going to ask you how you came to know her. I had no idea it went all the way back that far. Uh, that's wonderful. But something stood out to me uh, that you mentioned in the introduction to that book that I'd like to ask you about. You say possession is a linchpin of Jung's analytical psychology. What do you mean by that? Well, switching gears here, sorry. No, no, no. It's um, a linchpin is, is very small but it's holding something in place which, which keeps the, the wheel uh, moving forward. What I noticed um, just with regard to Jung's language, his vocabulary, is that when you read through the collected works, he, he uses typological language for a time and then he drops it. He uses complex theory for a time, and then he drops it. He uses alchemical language towards the end of his life uh, and sort of stays with the alchemical language. But what I noticed was that if you track the word possession through the collected works, you'll see that it's, it's a constant. It's there in his medical dissertation when he's a very young man, just graduating from the University of Basel. And it's the word possession is in one of the last essays that he wrote um, to a, a, an audience of medical doctors, and he's talking about schizophrenia. So what I meant by linchpin, um, the other metaphor I used was that it's like a, a, a through line in the collected works. You can f see that he's always hanging on to that word possession to describe phenomenologically our experience of the unconscious possessing us, uh, whether for good or for bad, um, being gripped by a complex, um, being possessed by an archetype. And his question is, what do we do with that experience? Whether it's a, an inflation, uh, a negative inflation, whether it's an inspiration, um, how do we how do we respond to being possessed and what does how does the archetype feel <laughs> it's an odd way to say it but uh, how must the archetype feel being diminished into one tiny human body sort of like God um, uh, trying to fit himself into 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 the uh, the body of Christ, um, which which you know it must have felt like a diminishment. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, since we only have an hour, I wanted to go over each of your books a little bit, uh, and for you to tell the listeners a little bit about it uh, after. Possession came out. And I do want to mention that you came out with a revised edition a few years ago. Um, why did you decide to revise Possession? Oh, because um, it's an interdisciplinary book. There's a, there's a chapter on Possession in the History of Religion. There's a chapter on uh, Possession in Anthropology. And there's a chapter on Possession in Psychiatry. And uh, after I published the book, 
the DSM-5 replaced the DSM-4, and um, there was an attempt by the American Psychiatric Association to introduce possession into the DSM-5. And so I was really interested in why American psychiatrists wanted to co-opt this word and what were they doing with it. Uh, uh, So I revised the book uh, simply to include um, the discussions which the psychiatrists held as they were trying to uh, bring the word possession into the DSM. Would you, that's fascinating. Would you tell us just a little bit more about that before we move on? Well, um, I, th- I was at first excited um, because I thought, oh, well, maybe they're going to get a little closer to, to Jung um, in understanding um, the experience of an archetype. Um, but what I realized eventually in the discussions was that they were, they were using it um, only to describe um, the experience of um, being possessed in other cultures um, when, when you run amok or, or when you go berserk. Or, right. but, yeah. but they relegated it all to other cultural contexts. Nothing like that could happen to you in the United States. Yeah. Of- yeah. So, so it was a missed opportunity. Right. Ah. Uh. So your next book uh, is one that uh, John Beebe, who I had uh, as my guest a couple months ago, mentioned is Anteros, A Forgotten Myth. And you explore how the myth of Anteros, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, disappears and reappears throughout the centuries. So tell us a little bit about Anteros. Well, Anteros, um, the book came out of my experience at the Jung Institute in, in Zurich. Um, I heard a, a couple of analysts mention some paintings, Renaissance paintings that depicted Anteros, who is the brother of Eros. And, um, and I looked at the paintings and I wanted to understand what the paintings were about. So I went back to the Greek myths and there were only a few references to uh, Anteros in Greek mythology. Um, and there, didn't, there seemed to be a total disconnect between the Greek myth and the Renaissance paintings. Mm-hmm. So I was very curious about, about that. Um, the Greek myth is really very fascinating. There's, um, there's a story that says that Aphrodite, who is the mother of Eros, notices that her son Eros cannot grow up. He stays a, a little boy with little tiny wings. And so she goes to her sister, Themis, who is a titan. So she's, this is an Olympian goddess going to a titan, going back in, in time to a, a, a previously more powerful um, godhead. And she asks her sister for advice. And her sister says, well, you must have a second child. It must be fathered by the god of war, Ares, and you will call the child Anteros. And as long as Anteros is around, Eros will grow. And so Aphrodite follows her sister's instructions. She, uh, she, she and Ares, the god of war, make love. She gives birth to a second son, Anteros. Um, and the myth says that as long as Anteros is present, Eros grows. But if Anteros goes away, Eros regresses. So there's something here about some insight about how love grows, which the, the Greeks were trying to understand. And it's and the suggestion was that this this ant eros, not anti, it's not the Latin anti, it's the Greek ant meaning equal to, um, equal to eros. Um, this this opposite but um, the, this sibling rivalry creates growth. And so I started there 
um, trying to just understand what the myth meant for the Greeks, and then moving forward, um, looking at those Renaissance paintings, which had puzzled me so much, and um, because there in the Renaissance, they took the myth of Anteros and Eros and set it up as an opposition between profane love and sacred love, the profane quality to Eros as carnal love and Anteros as spiritual love. Um, that doesn't last very long. Uh, by the time you get to the Romantics, um, Anteros is carrying the negative, not the positive. Uh, and, and then he, he just sort of pops up from time to time. So, for example, Sir Alfred Gilbert in England in the modernist period sculpts um, that wonderful statue in Piccadilly Circus, which everybody thinks is Eros. But if you if you go back and look at um, his notes and his preparations, it's a statue to Anteros. And Sir Alfred Gilbert actually instructs his biographer and says, when you write about my life, designate the first part of my life as Eros and the second part of my life as Anteros. But so I, I mentioned that the myth is forgotten because you know, crowds walk by that statue of yeah. um, Anteros in Piccadilly Circus every day, and they don't know that it's Anteros. Next, we have uh, Philemon Foundation publication, or uh, they actually don't publish, so Princeton University Press publishes. This was a project of the Philemon Foundation, uh, which publishes the unpublished work of C.G. Jung, and you edited this volume. It's titled On Psychological and Visionary Art, Notes from C.G. Jung's Lecture on Gerard de Nerval's Aurelia. And I love this book. I was reading it this week, and it's it's really a beautiful book. It's it contains uh, Alfred Kubin's illustrations, which I found to be very, very powerful, especially at this time. So tell us about your experience uh, editing this book. Well, I discovered uh, in 1996 when I was in Zurich, I discovered Jung's uh, lecture on Nerval's Aurelia in the special collections of the library of the ETH University. And um, when the um, editors of the collected works of Jung were making decisions about what to include and what not to include, um, they decided not to publish in the collected works Jung's lecture on Nerval. Um, and so, um, so Jung wrote a little abstract, a little, you know, 100 word paragraph that went into the collected works saying that, that he had written this, this lecture. Um, it's so in, it's in volume 18, right? It's in volume 18. It's just, it's just a little paragraph. Um, so, uh, I read the lecture, the 1945 lecture, and I read the 1942 lecture, um, which Jung first wrote and presented to a, um, an association of psychotherapists. And then in 1945, he gave the, the lecture again at the psychology club, um, but much a much revised lecture. So I uh, and I was able to see at the special collections, the 42 lecture, all of Jung's notes and the way he crossed out paragraphs and wordings and then presented his ideas in a more reformed uh, um, way in 1945. And I, um, I, I just thought it was a very important document um, because Nerval um, was one of the most important writers of the French Romantic period. Um, he also was institutionalized eight times for madness. And um, his doctor, Dr. Blanche, who was very progressive at the time, encouraged him to try to write his way out of his madness, to write an account of his madness as an attempt to 
to get out of it. Um, and that's, you know, it, it's very, very, it's a very, very moving document. Um, and so Jung was reading Nerval and, um, and responding to Nerval's personal history, but also to the fact that Nerval stepped into the collective unconscious um, he wasn't just describing um, his personal unconscious. He was going, he, he, he had lucid experiences of going back in time uh, to the beginning of time, to the beginning of the universe and so on. Um, and he was, he was totally lucid um, and he was reporting these experiences. So Jung was very moved by Nerval's text because what he could see was that Nerval uh, could not profit from the insights that he was recording, but that we as readers could. That Jung found very moving. Uh, and uh, um, so uh, I, that was a, a love project. I, I discovered the, um, the lectures in 1996 and it took me 20 years to get them published. Uh, um, yeah, it, it's just to get permission from the Jung family. They, they were they were very helpful, but it just took time. And and then the Philemon Foundation um, wanted to do it as as part of the, um, their series of unpublished works. So um, uh, Sonu Dazani uh, uh, supported the project, and we 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 um, submitted it to Princeton University Press. And uh, but it, it it was a love project. I I really enjoyed working on that material, and uh, I'm so glad you liked the book. Um, yeah, it really shows that it was a love project. Uh, it 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 shows in the book. And uh, just for the listeners, it contains a very long introduction by Dr. Stevenson, and also Jung's abstract on Nerval from uh, the Collected Works, Volume 18, which I mentioned. Uh, and then in part three, it's Jung's lecture uh, at the Psychology Club in 1945. And then part four is the minutes of the discussion following the lecture. And then part five is uh, is Jung's notes to the 1942 lecture, and part six is Jung's first notes on Aurelia, and then part seven is Nerval's Aurelia uh, with, as I mentioned earlier, Alfred Kubin's illustrations, which there's one on the cover, but uh, they're throughout the end of the book, and they're just, they're so moving. Uh, they They really struck me. So, I hope everybody has a look at this book. Um, moving on, uh, we're running out of time, but uh, there are a couple more of your books. There are two more that I'd like to cover. Uh, the next one is Ages of Anxiety, Jung's Types as Inspiration for Poetry, Music, and Dance. And that was published in 2016. It was the part of the Zurich Lecture Series in Analytical Psychology, which uh, is with ISAP Zurich, the International School of Analytical Psychology. And those that the series, the lecture series, used to be published by Spring Journal Books. It's now being published by Chiron Publications. Um, but this was published by Spring Journal, and you might have a difficult time finding this book. I believe it's out of print. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, it is out of print. Uh, uh, maybe it will be reprinted at some point. I hope so. I hope yeah, so. because this is fascinating as well. Uh, you look at how the poet W.H. Auden used Jung's typology to understand the effect of the Second World War on both individual and collective psyches. And uh, I just want to mention this. There is a review of this book in the Fanes Journal, which is available for free online. I'll provide a link in the show notes. Uh, in volume three of Fanes, Stephen Herman writes, 
in his review of this book, the type analysis in this book is the best and most creative part of the whole volume and should be studied by every Jungian because of its analytic focus on the newest advances in type theory and its practical usages, whether in analysis or art. So tell us a little bit about this book, if you would. Well, um, it, it's a book about W.H. Auden, as you mentioned. Uh, he moved from uh, England to New York City um, just at the beginning of the Second World War um, with a very conflicted, trying to understand what does a poet do in, during a time of war. And his poem, The Age of Anxiety, which is a book-length poem, a kind of narrative, um, is his answer to that question. And he, he tried to formulate his answer by, um, by casting four characters who, uh, as the, the four functions, uh, and they, they meet in a bar <laughs> in New York City and have a conversation and then have a have a break and then continue the conversation and then they get in a taxi and go up to the upper west side to somebody's apartment and continue the conversation and uh, and so you have the four functions talking to each other and trying to understand um uh, um, the moment when fascism is um submerging the entire world what is the what is the role of the individual uh, in 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 society in such a moment? Um, so I was very moved that Auden was trying to work this out um, in his poem. Um, then what I discovered was that Leonard Bernstein um, took the structure of the poem and wrote his second symphony um, using that structure. And so, so we have Bernstein, who I, I did not know until I was doing the research that he actually did a Jungian analysis. I was going to ask you if he, if he yeah. had, yeah. Yes, he did. And so he's taking Auden's poem and, the, and this four-part structure, these four functions, and he's transposing this into music. Then I discovered that, um, that the symphony had been choreographed as a ballet three times by Jerome Robbins in New York City, by John Neumeyer in Hamburg, at the Hamburg Ballet, and most recently by Liam Scarlett uh, in the Covent Garden um, Ballet, the Royal Ballet of Covent Garden. So, um, so I, I did some research on what each of the choreographers did with the dynamics because um, they were working with four dancers. So the four dancers were representing the, the four functions. Um, so I was just sort of tracking this creative thread um, in the lectures. Um, I had a lot of fun with the lecture series because on the first night, uh, rather than the, the lecture series takes place over a weekend in Zurich, a Friday night and all day Saturday. Um, and it, it's a beautiful series set up by ISAP. And they were so supportive and so helpful. And so uh, rather than lecture to the audience uh, Friday night and all day Saturday, I invited a concert pianist, uh, Victoria Hermantieva, and uh, a second pianist, Benedict Horvath, to come and they played Bernstein's Second Symphony transcribed for two pianos um, to the audience on the Friday night. And I have to say that um, I was so glad I didn't lecture on the Friday night and I just let them experience the music. It changed the whole quality of the, the question and answer periods. Um, yeah, the audience was in a completely different place. So, um, so the book is um, um, the summation of the of those lectures. Of those lectures, and I just would like to add, uh, I forgot to mention that Auden's uh, the the Age of Anxiety that book length poem won the Pulitzer Prize for poetry 
1948. So you have a new book coming out at the end of this year. It will be released by Routledge on December 6th. And I'm so excited about this book. It is titled The Correspondence of Victoria Ocampo, Count Kaiserling, and C.G. Jung, Writing to the Woman Who Was Everything. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you will be doing a presentation, uh, a performed uh, reading of this book at the IAP Congress in Buenos Aires, which is uh, being held next month. So would you tell us what this book is about? And, uh, and we'll go from there. Okay. Um, yes, I'd, I'd be really happy to. It's, it's, um, it's a lovely project. Um, the, the book is a description of two meetings Um, Victoria Ocampo, uh, who was an Argentinian intellectual, and Hermann von Kaiserling, who was a German philosopher. It's about their meeting in Versailles at the Hotel des Reservoirs in 1929. Um, And what happened was that Victoria Ocampo um, in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, wrote to Kaiserling uh, a series of letters, very effusive letters, telling Kaiserling how much she admired his travel diaries of a philosopher. And so she was writing fan letters, but these were not just any fan. She she had a publishing company. She was inviting him to come to Argentina and she wanted to organize a tour of South America for him. And um, and and she was very a very passionate reader. Um, and and Kaiserling um, uh, agreed to to uh, meet her at the Hotel de Reservoir in in Versailles, um, but the the meeting was a, a disaster because um, as much as she admired his writing, um, she was repulsed by the man physically. <laughs> And um, and he assumed that she was sexually available to him. So um, uh, so they they met for a period of about two months every day. Um, She honored her commitment to him uh, to bring him to Argentina, to South America, to tour and write about. Uh, his responses to the continent. Uh, she honored that commitment, um, but she was constantly having to fend him off. So there's a little bit of a kind of Me Too movement story here uh, about Ocampo's position as a passionate reader trying to make sense of, well, how do you fall in love with somebody's prose and, and not with the person? And this is a huge dilemma that she needs to work out uh, and needs to to understand in herself. Um, The extent to which she is projecting her authority onto powerful male writers who know something about the power of words. Um, And at the same time, Kaiserling is totally enamored by Victorio Ocampo. And so what he does He's a, he's a friend of Jung's, and so he writes to Jung for advice, and he's sending his accounts of his dreams to Jung and, and asking what he should do, because he's, he, he's totally possessed, we would say, by the anima. And Jung advises him uh, and tries to uh, give him suggestions of what he should do. So that's one part of the story. The second part of the story is that um, after they they break from each other, Kaiserling and Ocampo, and, and Ocampo refuses to ever see him again, Ocampo goes to Zurich to meet Jung. Um, and she wants to publish psychological types in Spanish. Um, but there's this question that she has in the back of her mind, which is, does he know who she is from letters from Kaiserling? 
So she's uh, writing to him to ask to meet him, but she's saying sort of tentatively, maybe you know who I am, maybe you don't, um, maybe we have mutual friends. And, um, and at one point she actually asks him if she can do an analysis with him. And uh, his response is very curious and uh, slightly cold. And um, uh, that can be interpreted in a number of different ways. So I was interested in these two meetings, these two moments, the moment when Ocampo meets Kaiserling in the hotel, the moment when she travels to Zurich and meets Jung in his, in his library, in his office. And um, the research that I did was to um, take those two moments and to find all the letters that preceded and that followed those two meetings. So, uh, so in in, in the uh, in the book, the reader can read those effusive letters that uh, Ocampo was writing to Kaiserling in 1927, 1928. Um, you can read the letters that Kaiserling wrote to Jung asking for advice, and Jung's letters back giving advice. You can read the letters that. Ocampo writes to Jung asking to meet him, and then what happens immediately after their very short meeting. And then uh, at the, towards the end of the book, um, before he dies, um, Kaiserling writes his memoirs. And in his memoirs, he writes a chapter about Jung and a chapter about Victoria Ocampo as his anima. And um, Ocampo is so upset by this memoir because she feels it misrepresents who she is. And so she writes a book, a, sh a very short book, uh, Rebuttal, to um, say that, you know, that, that was your projection on me, Kaiserling, but this is who I am. And, and it's a beautiful statement of, um, of her individuation process. So, um, so the book is about these two meetings or these two failed meetings and about all the correspondence that lead, leads up to those meetings and the correspondence that follows them. I love it. This is so exciting. And I, I would like to add that Jung framed Kaiserling's account of his encounter with Ocampo as, quote, one of the most beautiful animus animus stories I have ever heard. Yes, this is very curious. Wow, wow. <laughs> and then I would like to uh, also read um, the, I don't know what to call it, the uh, Dr. Singer, Tom Singer, the Jungian analyst Tom Singer wrote a, a little, um, what do you call these that, that are usually printed on the back of the book? An endorsement. Thank you, an endorsement. He says, Craig Stevenson has the rare knack of taking a singular, often forgotten moment in history and mining it for unexpected riches. In this early, early 20th century whodunit, Stevenson shows himself to be a master psychological detective in his use of primary sources to uncover the unconscious dynamics of a fateful encounter between the animus of a wealthy South American heiress and the anima of a powerful, cultured European aristocrat. And he goes on, but I just wanted to mention that. So he calls this an early 20th century whodunit, and I love it. I'm so excited. I can't wait for it to come out. And I just want to say, too, everybody who follows me on social media will see that I have been posting uh, the cover image. There's something about the cover of this book. It's a very simple drawing, but the colors uh, in the drawing, and you had sent me the four um, the, mm -hmm. the, the four prototypes, and then the one that was decided on, which is my favorite color combination. But I am mesmerized by this cover. Just, I'm just curious. Would you tell us a little bit about who designed it? Oh, uh, David Magellans, who's a um, uh, a, d a designer in Mexico City. Ah, he worked. From, he worked from a photograph. Um, of Victoria Ocampo, 
But you're absolutely right. The simplicity of the figure drawing and the the evocativeness of the colors. Yes. uh, It's gorgeous. It is. And I actually put all four of them together and uh, in Photoshop and saved it as one image and put that in my Instagram stories so nobody can grab it. Those stories disappear after 24 hours. But I I just can't stop staring at it. I, I love it. I can't wait for this book to come out. Uh, as I mentioned, next month, you will be giving a special presentation, the performed reading with the three Argentinian actors. And isn't it interesting, I can't imagine this was planned, that this this book involves this great Argentinian you know, woman, and it will be presented at the IAAP Congress, which just so happens to be held in Argentina. Yes, <laughs> a, a happy accident. A happy accident. So I will let you have the final word as we wrap up here. Is there anything I didn't cover? I don't know. <laughs> You're amazing, Laura. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I, I think we've, uh, we've taken quite a, quite a trip today. So I appreciate your questions very much. Well, and thank you for staying with me. I know I tend to jump around. um, But there will be links to everything we discussed in the show notes for this episode at speakingofyoung.com. So please visit that website, speakingofyoung, that's J-U-N-G.com for more information on everything that was discussed here today. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. Speaking of Young is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on our YouTube channel, Jungian and Laura. So with special thanks to Alexis O'Brien and George Russell at Routledge, and to Professor Sonu Shamdasani, I'm Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Young. <laughs> <laughs>